When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Adam Coleman, welcoming you into the Cosmic Library and handing you this podcast episode about the science of the Thousand and One Nights. Overall, the nights defy categorization. We kind of got at that in the first episode. But something about the shape of the thing, the shape of the nights, in which each night ends with a promise of more story the next night, more to learn, Something about that suggests the repetitions of scientific experiment and exploration. Here's Mazinaus. The early stories have a lot of scientific discovery in them, like in the Syrian manuscript. For instance, there is an island called Magnet Mountain. And so they were experimenting with the magnet at that point and thinking about the properties of the magnet. And Magnet Mountain, if a ship came by it, all of the nails in the ship would just kind of leave the ship and go to the Magnet Mountain. And then the ship falls apart and everybody in the ship dies, okay? And so there's a hero who doesn't die though and makes it onto Magnet Mountain and then finds his way out eventually. But that unlikely scenario though is based on science and the properties of the magnet. The Magnet Mountain appears in a story within a story, as so many things do in the nights. In this case, it's the third calendar's tale, found in the famous story of the porter and the three ladies of Baghdad. There's a gathering of story-bearing characters in a mysterious home. Stories of loss and curiosity are then shared, and the last of the three calendars, three wandering seekers, reveals scientific findings of magnetism. Let me read a short passage from that story. I'm using the translation of Richard Burden here. Then we set out again and sailed other 20 days, the seas broadening and the land shrinking. Presently, the current ran counter to us, and we found ourselves in strange waters, where the captain had lost his reckoning and was wholly bewildered in the sea. So said we to the lookout man, Get thee to the masthead and keep thine eyes open. He swarmed up the mast and looked out and cried aloud, O Reyes! I espy to starboard something dark, very like a fish floating on the face of the sea. And to larboard there is a loom in the midst of the main, now black and now bright. When the captain heard the lookout's words, he dashed his turban on the deck and plucked out his beard and beat his face, saying, Good news indeed, we be all dead men, not one of us can be saved. And he fell to weeping, and all of us wept for his weeping, and also for our lives. And I said, O captain, Tell us what it is the lookout saw. O my prince, answered he, know that we lost our course on the night of the storm, which was followed on the morrow by a two days calm during which we made no way. And we have gone astray, eleven days reckoning from that night, with narrow wind to bring us back to our true course. Tomorrow, by the end of the day, we shall come to a mountain of black stone, height the magnet mountain. For thither the currents carry us willy-nilly, as soon as we are under its lee, the ship's sides will open, and every nail in plank will fly out and cleave fast to the mountain. 
Here's Yasmin Seal on the science of the Abbasid era, the golden age behind the compilation of the Thousand and One Nights. The Abbasid age is one which, in which there was a real ambition to know everything. It's a period that sees the proliferation of encyclopedic works, dictionaries and compendia are literary genres. We see all kinds of books that are trying to categorize the world in different ways. The Book of Misers, which is um, this wonderful, strange text by uh, Ajahez, which is simply a, a collection of different kinds of misers and a description. The Knights might be thought of as a work in that vein. It's a, a work that is trying to tell the whole world, but rather than try and, and categorize it, it's in a way dramatizing the sheer variousness of things. And I love what you said about this being connected to science and inquiry. There's a sometimes a distinction made between, you know, wonder and enchantment and these kinds of fairy tales on the one hand and scientific investigation on the other. But they might also be thought of as aspects of each other or wonder as an aspect of scientific inquiry. I think that's partly why the European 18th century imagination was so receptive to this work. It's a book about enchantment at the world which is not a retreat from trying to understand the world. It's an appropriate response to the phenomena of this world. The theoretical physicist Jim Al-Khalili has written a history of the House of Wisdom, the center of learning in the Abbasid era. This is all centered around the city of Baghdad, of course, which was the new capital of the Islamic empire in the 8th century. Islam itself as a new religion came out of Arabia and then very, very quickly spread north throughout the Middle East and then North Africa and, you know, wider, you know, all the way to Spain in the West and India in the East. By the mid eighth century, there was a new dynasty that took over, the Abbasid dynasty. Very powerful, very wealthy. The empire was, you know, at its probably greatest expansion and they were looking for a, a new capital. So they built this the city of Baghdad as a new capital for them. Because they were powerful, because they were confident, you know, they weren't any longer worried about, you know, protecting their borders and so on against invaders. They entered a golden age, an intellectual golden age, in the same way that the great Greek golden age of, of Athens you know, existed before, or the Roman Empire. And they were very interested in scholarship, very interested in learning, very interested in books. And they would bring back books from mainly from the lands they conquered and translate them into Arabic. So Arabic was the language of this new religion of Islam because it was the language that the, the holy book, the Quran, was written in. They would get books from, uh, you know, Greek books, um, books from Persia, from India, and translate them all into Arabic. And it was a synthesis that brings in all this knowledge, not just science, but literature and poetry and theology and music. This movement grew. The translation movement led to this intellectual movement in Baghdad. And the House of Wisdom is somehow this central sort of focus of where this took place. Of course, there is no evidence of where the House of Wisdom exactly was, what it exactly was. You know, some historians have said, oh, it was it was a translation house or it didn't really, or it was a library. It wasn't really, you know, sort of somewhere where the greatest scholars congregated. I think it wasn't more than that. We've heard a little so far of the Abbasid Caliph Harun al-Rashid, who himself appears in the nights along with his vizier, Jafar, in the kind of sociable pursuit that both defined his reign and characterized so much of the Thousand and One Nights. But the scientific learning of this age extended beyond the reign of Harun al-Rashid. It was Harun al-Rashid's son 
the caliph who came after him, El Ma'mun, who really created the House of Wisdom, turned it into just from a just a library or translation house into a place where scholars from all around the world would come to study, to work, to discuss. And that's where this scientific movement, this is called the golden age of Arabic science, that's really was, was centered around the House of Wisdom. So you see the invention pretty much of the field of algebra advances in trigonometry in astronomy and medicine and chemistry and physics and so on. There's a slight mismatch between the, the stories of A Thousand and One Nights centered around Baghdad and the time when the House of Wisdom itself really became the place to be. You know, it's, it was the, the Harvard MIT of, of the medieval world. You know, if you wanted to do something, you wanted to be noticed, if you wanted to get your book disseminated and read, you had to go to the House of Wisdom in Baghdad. And there is a connection, maybe, you know, Harvard MIT connected to a certain kind of a certain amount of money, and that seems to be a player here, part of the story. How do we track the transition from father to son, or from being a kind of economic powerhouse to a house of learning? How did commerce, conquest, expansion lead into learning? Certainly, I think during Harun Rashid's time, we talk about that as the golden age of Baghdad. It really was about wealth, power, commerce, conquering surrounding lands, expansion. By the time of his son, El Ma'mun, things had settled down. I mean, Baghdad itself went through a rather disruptive period. El Ma'mun was battling with his brother for the seat of power after Harun al-Rashid died. There was upheaval in Baghdad. But El Ma'mun was regarded as someone who was obsessed with learning, more so than his father. There's this uh, famous story that uh, he, he dreamt of Aristotle. One night, Aristotle came to him in his dreams and told him he had to pursue learning. He had to, if you expand and conquer lands, don't bring back gold, bring back books. That was part of the, the um, attitude and atmosphere in Baghdad. Um, among the hierarchy of the Abbasid powerhouse, there was an obsession. It was in vogue to be cultured, to be intellectual, to provide the patronage to translators, to translate the books of Aristotle or Plato or Ptolemy, the, the astronomer. It just became de rigueur, the thing to do, because you had wealth and money, you actually provided patronage to scholars to come to Baghdad, to work in the House of Wisdom, to translate books, and then come and give talks in salons. You know, so this, the atmosphere of, of intellectual inquiry grew slowly, partly because of the influence of Persian culture on the Islamic empire, which was new to the Abbasid world. The Arabs who came out of Arabia weren't steeped in culture and history in the same way that Persians were. So there was a Persian influence that influenced the Abbasid intellectual sort of atmosphere. What were some discoveries of chemical transformation, of material transformation? What, what, how do we break down some of the things discovered in this era? First of all, they were learning. You know, what did the Greeks know about astronomy? What did the Greeks know about chemistry? You know, for the Greeks, there were the, the four elements, earth, air, water, and fire. Matter and the universe was all made up of these four elements. The Greeks argued about whether matter, the world, was made up of tiny indivis indivisible particles, which today we'd call atoms, or whether it could be infinitely divisible, you know, forever, and it was continuous. But the, the Greeks, clever though they were, 
weren't really experimental scientists in the same way that we think of scientists today. Yes, there were a few. There was, you know, the Archimedes, for example, you know, with his Eureka and, and Archimedes principle. There were astronomers who were trying to learn about the heavens, despite this being you know, a long time before telescopes. Uh, but on the whole, Greeks did the thinking. In the Islamic world and centered around Baghdad, they were bringing together different techniques. So they were saying, right, we've got these books from ancient Greeks. We've you know, got Galen's book on medicine. Well, is that right? Can we test it? Can we add to it? We got Ptolemy's book on astronomy. Was he right about the sun and the moon and so on? Can we make measurements? They were questioning. It wasn't just curiosity in what had come before. There was a whole movement called the doubts where they would say, well, yeah, just because, you know, the ancient Greeks said so, or best, just because this great Indian scholar Aryavata said something doesn't mean we have to believe it. Let's check it for ourselves. The original ideas really came about in uh, subjects like maths and chemistry. So you mentioned, we mentioned chemistry was born during this medieval period as distinct from alchemy. Certainly, you know, today we know what, you know, chemistry is a science and is an exact science. Alchemy is tied up with superstition and theological ideas and so on. And, and you know, the philosopher's stone, transmutation of elements. They were very much mixed up back in the medieval times. But we see the birth of proper quantitative chemistry as a science in this time. And there was a particular scholar who didn't live in Baghdad. He, he tended to work alone in the city of Kufa, south of Baghdad. And his name was Jabir ibn Hayyan. Now, he was a contemporary of Harun al-Rashid's. He did come before the House of Wisdom and Harun al-Rashid's son, Al-Matmoon. A lot of the chemical instruments, you know, pipettes and test tubes and things, he was one of the people who first started using them and inventing them and, and being careful about chemistry. He set in motion chemists who came after him who went way beyond the Greeks' idea of the four elements and really started to classify the elements in different ways, you know, acids and alkalis, you know, you know alcohol originates from the Arabic word alcohol. Alkalis originates from the Arabic word alkali. A lot of the, the words that we use today in chemistry really originate in the Arabic language because of the work of these early scholars. Probably the most famous example of uh, a new area of science that really grew out of uh, the House of Wisdom in Baghdad is, of course, algebra. Famously, it was a book written by a Persian scholar. Although these books were written in Arabic, it doesn't mean they were Arabs, they were the scholars. These were people who were Christians, Jews, Muslims, Arabs, Persians. It was a, it was a mixture, but they wrote their books in Arabic. So this Persian scholar, Al-Khawarizmi, whose Latinized name is Algorithmus, from which we derive the word algorithm, wrote a book called The Book of Completion. In Arabic, it was called Algebra. And Algebra, it gives us the word algebra. It was the very first book on algebra. Even the Greeks, even the ancient Babylonians were dabbling with sort of rudimentary algebra. They weren't really providing the, you know, the stuff that we learn in high school, you know, X and Ys, and you've got an equation, you've got to solve it to find the value of X, the unknown. That's what Al-Khawarizmi gave us in this book. And so we see the birth of a new field of mathematics in Baghdad. This is in the early ninth century. And that book was then translated into Latin, many other languages, and algebra kicked off after that. How did astronomy change or emerge in this time? Well, of course, as with uh, you know everyone until Galileo, <laughs> there were no telescopes. So the astronomy that was always carried out was what you could see with the naked eye. 
Nevertheless, they used all sorts of instruments, armillary spheres and sectants and astrolabes, and exotic things that helped them map the sky. One could say, well, they, how, they didn't really advance our understanding of the heavens that much from you know, the, the ancient Greeks. The most famous book on astronomy from the ancient world, from antiquity, was a book by the Greek Ptolemy, uh, the Almagest. Did they advance it beyond that? Well, it wasn't really until Copernicus comes up with his heliocentric model of the universe that the Earth goes around the sun and not the other way around. And then Galileo points a telescope up at the sky and, and says, yeah, yeah, Copernicus was right, actually. You know, this, this, the Earth isn't the centre of the universe. But this period, they did make advances in astronomy and their influence on later astronomers was huge. So they developed star charts. They mapped the stars in the sky. So many of the stars that astronomers will know about today have names derived from the Arabic. That's because these astronomers during this period were writing, what, were putting down what are called a zij, which is a star chart. And those star charts were incredibly useful, not just for other astronomers, other scholars. So many of the travelers, you know, from Marco Polo to Christopher Columbus were using star charts to help with their navigation. And those star charts were created by these Arab scholars. I made a TV documentary for the BBC some years back where I was reading through Copernicus's book, this great text called De Revolutionibus, in which he says, look, you know, the solar system, there's the sun in the middle and the earth is just another planet going around it. But in that book is page upon page of tables of stars and statistics and numbers, all in Arabic, because he was borrowing from texts of Arab astronomers and using them in his work. He even some of the techniques, the mathematical techniques he used in his heliocentric model, go back to astronomers like a, there's a Persian by the name of Tusi, who developed a technique for describing the way planets orbit around the sun that Copernicus borrowed. So, you know, they didn't discover the, uh, the sort of stuff that Galileo was discovering about the moons of Jupiter, but they put in place so much information that enabled later astronomers in the, during the Renaissance period in Europe to actually do what they did. It also sounds like one of the legacies of this era, of this time, of this place, is a method, experimental mood, a speculative experimental approach. You mentioned a movement called the Doubts. That seems also particularly related to something going on in the Thousand and One Nights, a kind of speculative inquiry that compels repetitive, if not experiment, experience. Yeah, I mean, first of all, say obviously with, to do science for this golden age to happen needed more than wealth and confidence. You needed this atmosphere of intellectual inquiry, the freedom to think, to, to come up with ideas. You know, a thousand years ago, these scholars really were open-minded enough to want to go and look at the world. But yes, they, there was this movement that was quite different. The attitude was different from that of the ancient Greeks. We talk today about the scientific method. You know, you come up with a hypothesis, you then find a way of testing it, maybe through observation or by developing an experiment. And if that experiment says your hypothesis is wrong, then you have to be prepared to throw it away. That's the difference between a scientific theory and, say, a conspiracy theory, where no amount of evidence is going to persuade you otherwise. 
repeatability. You know, if you do an experiment and you find a result and you say, well, this suggests the, the world is this way, you want others to repeat that experiment, reproduce the same results to help not confirm that your theory is 100% true, but that your theory is, is, is on the right lines. So far, so good. But we constantly try and knock our theories off their pedestals. We try, we're always trying to see, to test them to breaking point. That's what we call the scientific method, to always have uncertainty, to never be so sure that your theory or, or hypothesis is right, but to be prepared to change your mind. We talk about the scientific method as going back to 18th, 17th century, sort of maybe people like, you know, Galileo or Descartes or Bacon, you know, these in the early sort of um, part of the scientific revolution in Europe, they were the people who laid down the modern scientific method. In fact, when you look at the writings of some of these medieval scholars, particularly there's an Arab uh, scholar by the name of Ibn al-Haytham, who lived slightly later than the period of Al-Makmun. He was sort of uh, 10th, 11th century. When he talks about how he comes up with a hypothesis about, for example, that light travels in straight lines, he then says, and I set up an experiment. It's almost like a lab diary. He talks about his experimental setup, his apparatus, how he checked it, how he tested it, what it suggested, his, you know, whether his theory was right or wrong, and implores others then to repeat that experiment. And he also says, look, never be so sure. So he was one of the founders of this movement of the doubts, it's called, in Arabic, it's called El Shukuk. And he was saying, don't believe just because so-and-so was, was famous, uh, you know, well-known scholar, and he says such and such, you don't have to take his word for it. Think about it yourself, test it for yourself to see if that person was right, and test your own ideas to see if they're right. So everything seemed to be in place there, probably for the first time, to suggest that the scientific method, as you know, the way we do science today, goes back not just three centuries or four centuries, but a millennium or more. You're a theoretical physicist. What is it that you find in this period? What have you what do you learn from this from this moment? I guess that we are no cleverer now than scholars of the past. In fact, in a sense, they were more resourceful. They were more they were deeper thinkers because they didn't have anything else to use to go by. They didn't have the machinery of advanced theoretical physics or, or computers or, or, or experimental labs. They were trying to think it through for the first time. They had nothing to, to come before them. So when you, you read about some of the debates between these scholars, the, the greatest um, scholars of that period that I haven't mentioned, I know it's like a, a, a list of who's who, <laughs> of my, my favorite medieval Islamic scholars, but two Persians, one by the name of Ibn Sina, Avicenna, who's very well known by historians in the West, and another less well-known Persian scholar by the name of Beiruni. Both these guys were philosophers, scientists, polymaths, and they were having the sorts of debates about the nature of reality that would not seem out of place in modern physics. The sort of debates, so, so for me as a theoretical physicist, I'm steeped in the famous stories of how um, Albert Einstein and Niels Bohr debated the nature of reality in quantum mechanics back in the 1920s. I see that the parallels a thousand years earlier between these two Persian scholars, Ibn Sina and Beiruni, debating about how does the light from the sun reach the earth as it travels through space? Are there many worlds? Are there parallel universes? Stuff that you'd think, how, how could they possibly be talking about that? 
I just get the feeling that, you know, we didn't invent cleverness in modern times. We don't have a monopoly on how to decipher the world around us just because we have the advantage of modern experimental and theoretical techniques. People have been clever and thinking about clever stuff for all the way back to the ancient Greeks and Babylonians. So it's, it's quite a, a sobering thought, I think, for me. And people have been cleverly navigating science fiction, at least as far back as the time of the compilation of The Thousand and One Nights. The legacy of that runs through more recent landmarks of science fiction. Here's Mazin Naus. Okay, I'm going to come up with, bring the first one up, which is very unlikely, which is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Okay, okay so first we know for, that there was a copy of the Galand Nights in Mary Shelley's father's library. She's read it and it was a translation. Once okay, we learn of the creature that Frankenstein creates, how that creature create, he basically learns to speak French is by spying on the de Lacy family. And the son, Felix, was in love with an Arab woman called Safi, who comes in and they teach her how to speak French and the creature spies on them and learns with her the language. Now, this is really interesting because of course Safi is one of the three ladies of Baghdad in that story, the portrait and the three ladies of Baghdad. In the Richard Burton translation, he doesn't give names. He doesn't name these three ladies. Where in the Galand, he gives them names and one of the names is Safi whose name means pure in Arabic. And so she makes it into the very heart of Frankenstein. And of course, the frame narrative of Frankenstein itself is inspired by the frame narrative of the Knights. It's when the creature is telling his story. First, we have the letters that are put together. That's the outer frame in Frankenstein. And then... We have the first narrator who's trying to go to the, the uh, Robert Walton, who's trying to go to the North Pole. And then he meets Victor Frankenstein, like near the, the, the North Pole, and brings him into the ship. And then Victor Frankenstein begins telling his story about how he created that creature and how he regretted it and tells that whole story. And then within that story, he runs into uh, the creature that he'd created and shunned. And the creature tells his story and that frame, which is the very heart of the novel Frankenstein, is also the story of Safi. Thank you for listening to the Cosmic Library. Guests this season include Katie Waldman, a critic at The New Yorker, Yasmin Seal, translator of The Thousand and One Nights, Jim Al-Khalili, theoretical physicist and author of The House of Wisdom, Mazin Naus, professor in the English department at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and Hardy White, host of Miracle Nutrition on WFMU.